The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Greg Skull of Womble Carlisle Sandridge and Rice in Washington, D.C. on rules involving political broadcasting. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Greg Skull of the Washington, D.C. office of Womble Carlisle Sandridge and Rice, LLP, actively represents telecommunications companies in domestic and international telecommunications enterprises in their regulatory matters and business dealings. He represents real estate developers in the acquisition of competitive broadband local exchange telecommunications services for new residential and commercial developments. He works with telecommunications equipment manufacturers to obtain FCC approvals and to assure regulatory compliance. He assists companies in need of appropriate spectrum support for emerging telecommunications products and has been recognized by the National Journal as one of the leading radio spectrum lobbyists in Washington. Mr. Skull regularly represents broadcasting stations in their regulatory dealings with the Federal Communications Commission in their commercial business dealings. He and several colleagues are authors of the treatise Telecommunications Regulation, Cable Broadcasting, Satellite, and the Internet, which is available from LexisNexis, and includes the chapter A Practical Guide and Summary of Political Broadcast Regulation. Mr. Skull, thanks for your time. Good to have you here. Thanks, Steve. It's it's good to be here. The chapter, A Practical Guide and Summary of Political Broadcast Regulation, is a particularly timely chapter. You wrote that along with who from your firm? Uh, well, with Peter Gutman. Peter and I are the two principal authors of that particular section, but there are several of us who have worked on the entire treatise. With another presidential election looming, political candidates are appearing with more frequency on television and radio. If, if you would, start us off with a real quick review of uh, the rules regarding broadcasting and political candidates. Sure. Well, let, let me give you what I call the political rules in a nutshell. And uh, there's about 10 points to this or somewhere around that. Let me just give it to you. First of all, a broadcast licensee must provide to legally qualified political candidates for federal office. That's That would be president, vice president, U.S. Congress reasonable access to their stations. And when a legally qualified candidate makes a use of the broadcast facility, that's an appearance by a recognizable voice or picture image, when they make the use of the broadcast facility during a non-exempt program, then opposing candidates are entitled to make a request for equal opportunities and to be afforded equal opportunities. Certain uses, however, may qualify for the station's lowest unit charge, and that's what the uh, candidate is entitled to. And uh, broadcast stations must make a full disclosure of the station's selling practices and charges and rates to all political advertisers. All uses by a candidate of the uh, of the station's facilities and appearances must be free from censorship and must bear the proper sponsorship identification and statements from uh, required by the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Every request for a use of the station's facilities and the disposition of that request must be recorded in the station's political file, local political file, which is available for public inspection. Understand that the fairness doctrine that so many people are familiar with has been repealed, 
uh, along with uh, corollary doctrines of political editorials and personal attacks, which are no longer valid principles. Stations are still subject, however, to the news distortion rules. They can't deliberately distort the news or fake reporting. And there are some third-party ad requirements now and disclosure requirements that have been imposed by the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, uh, in addition to those requirements that are imposed on political candidates. So there you have it. That's basically a quick nutshell of all of the political rules. Now, you mentioned uh, legally qualified candidates' use. Get into that a little bit more, if you would. What is use? What isn't use? Okay, well, a use is positive appearance by a legally qualified candidate by identifiable voice or picture that lasts for at least four seconds. The appearance does not have to be controlled or approved by the candidate. They simply have to be uh, to appear, and it has to be positive. Does this include appearances on, on uh, not only on advertisements, but also on the news or things like that? Well, it includes things like an appearance, uh, for example, uh, an actor who's running for office, and uh, they show a film that the actor was in or a TV series that the actor was in. And those are real cases that we've had. But it does not it does not include the news. Congress uh, initially it did, actually. And Congress ultimately created exceptions. And there are essentially four statutorily required exempt program categories, a bona fide newscast, mm-hmm. a bona fide news interview program, bonafide documentary program and on-the-spot coverage of a bonafide news event. And that includes, by the way, uh, station-sponsored debates. There was a specific case that was brought in order to exempt debates from equal opportunity so that stations could uh, sponsor the debates and actually just uh, hold the debates among the principal candidates without fearing equal opportunity demands by fringe candidates. It's interesting that you mentioned actors becoming political candidates. That immediately brought to mind Ronald Reagan. Yes, of course. And that was actually one of the seminal cases in that particular issue because uh, when he was running for governor, one of the local Los Angeles stations ran a film that he made called Bedtime for Bonzo. Right. And uh, his opponent in that race, uh, who I believe was Governor Brown, he actually made an equal opportunity demand for time because of the airing of Bedtime for Bonzo. The case was ultimately settled out, but it serves to illustrate the principle. Now, as far as access is concerned. Can all candidates demand access or time on a on a broadcast facility? Actually, no. That's uh, this was a statute that was passed by Congress. It's 312A7 of the Communications Act, and it applies only to federal candidates, legally qualified candidates for federal elective office, as I said earlier in the nutshell. So, state and local candidates. That's really up to the uh, broadcast station to determine which races uh, on a local or state level they they want to carry. But the principle of equal opportunities does apply to all races, all candidates, so that if they do carry uh, advertising by a candidate for a local office, whether it's a dog catcher, mayor, or governor, 
then they would have to afford equal opportunities to all of the legally qualified opposing candidates in that race. And in that race is an important distinction because if you're in the primary season, as we are right now, uh, when we're holding this conversation, the opposing candidates are those opposing you for the nomination of your party rather than those who you might be opposing in the general election uh, should you should the candidate win that primary. So it's not the opposing party candidates that would have equal opportunities, only those who are in the same race. And do these rules apply for non-commercial radio or television stations uh, as well as the commercial ones? Actually, no. Um, non-commercial stations are exempt from the mandatory access provisions of 312A7. The, initially, that was uh, unclear or they were subjected to them. But uh, as a result of some demands that were made to uh, public broadcasting stations, Congress, in its wisdom, decided that they should be exempt. And so it does not apply. But equal opportunity still applies uh, across the board. What brought on these rules from the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC? Why such specific rules for political candidates? Well, actually, the commission didn't. Uh, the, the rules predate the commission. They didn't come up with the by the commission. They came up in Congress, and it goes all the way back to uh, the 1920s when radio, you know, first hit the public, and it was such a phenomenon. And and uh, radio broadcasting was so quickly adopted by the public that Congress felt that it was important to assure that there would be equal opportunities uh, among opposing candidates. And so way back in 1927, the original Section 18 of the Radio Act of 1927 included uh, equal opportunities provisions, and they were brought forward in the Communications Act of 1934, the succeeding act to the Radio Act of 1927. And then uh, there have been modifications to them ever since. In 1952, there was a significant modification, and then in 1972, the lowest unit charge provisions and uh, the access provisions were adopted primarily in reaction to Watergate, but that's when that's when those principles uh, came into being. And then it was up to the FCC to adopt rules to implement the provisions of the, of the Communications Act. You mentioned lowest unit charge. Talk a little more about that. What is the general rule as far as what broadcasters can charge political candidates? Well, really qualified candidates are entitled to the lowest unit charge. In other words, you have to treat a legally qualified candidate uh, or their campaign, their authorized campaign, as well as your most favored advertiser. So you may have an advertiser that has um, bought a lot of time and got a very favorable rate because of that, mm -hmm. and they got a bulk discount. You have to give the political advertiser the unit charge of what it would be for just one of those ads. And uh, that's what they're entitled to in the 45-day period prior to a primary and the 60-day period prior to a general election. Here's a quick definition of it. It's the lowest price charged for any individual unit of time sold in the same class, in the same length, and program or date part that runs within the lowest unit charge window. Now, prior to that, the station broadcasters are required to give comparable rates, or rates that are roughly comparable to those that they would give to their commercial advertisers. And that was pretty much the rule before the lowest unit charge 
window, the lowest unit charge provisions were adopted by Congress. And does this apply to uh, PACs and third parties? It does not apply to PACs or third parties. So now that we're living in the age of the super PAC, uh, you know, as a result of the Citizens United case, they have to buy time. They are not authorized by the candidate. They can't be authorized by the candidate. They can't be authorized by the camp, the official campaign. And therefore, they are not entitled to lowest unit charge, and they have to buy like any other commercial advertiser. What kind of a responsibility does a broadcaster have as far as the truthfulness of, of an ad's concerned? And this is, this is a confusing area, and broadcasters do get demand letters to withdraw uh, political advertising, and of course, they're not permitted to do that. Under Section 315 of the Communications Act, a legally qualified candidate's ad, and this is whether this is uh, federal or state or local or whatever, if they're a legally qualified candidate and they've been sold time and they're advertising or presenting a message over uh, that broadcast station, the broadcaster is not permitted to censor it. In fact, they're not even permitted to require that it be submitted in advance. The only thing that they're required to do is to make sure that it has a proper sponsorship identification on it that's required by uh, Section 73.12.12 of the FCC's rules. So, And even then, they can ask the campaign for the ad in order to assure that that sponsorship ID is on, but they can't demand it. And uh, that's led to what the FCC calls its one-bite rule. And the one-bite rule is that they get to play it to air it one time before they have to make sure that the uh, sponsorship ID is on there. But basically, because they're not permitted to, to censor, uh, the Supreme Court has held that neither they, can they be held liable or responsible for what's in the content of a political ad. So the, the broadcaster is essentially not only not permitted to, to change it or withdraw it or to modify it, but they cannot be sued or can, you can always sue, but they cannot be held responsible. And that's the Farmers uh, Educational Cooperative versus WDAY case. But what if it's a, a, not a legally qualified candidate we're talking about, but a third party ad such as a super PAC? Well, super PAC third-party ads are not subject to 315 and can be censored, and the broadcaster can be liable. So censorship is allowed there, and broadcasters should certainly be very vigilant for problem ads. And they can be sued for libel or defamation because they have the powers to ship in those kinds of ads. What's a broadcaster do if they get a political ad with objectionable material, say, either obscene language or, or race-hate language? Well, if it's, uh, as we just said, if it's a third-party ad, then they have a responsibility to uh, a public interest responsibility, and uh, they cannot uh, broadcast obscene material. Uh, they can broadcast indecent material, but uh, that has to be channeled under FCC rules into hours when children would not be uh, viewing, so there's a safe harbor a period of time for, for that kind of material, but they need to know the FCC's rules and they need to understand both those who would make charges against the broadcaster as well as the broadcasters themselves. They simply have to understand this area in much greater depth and understand uh, what the FCC's policies are with respect to it and also under local law whether they can be sued for it. 
with respect to a political candidate, a legally qualified political candidate or their uh, authorized committee, the broadcaster really has very little flexibility here. Cases have gone to the courts. The best thing to do, again, here is when you get race-hate language or you get objectionable obscenity or that sort of thing um, in uh, your ads, then you really need to consult a lawyer and consult a lawyer quickly. We have had examples of that. We had a candidate in Missouri who was running as a write-in candidate for federal office on the white supremacy party uh, ticket, and some of their advertisements were, his advertisements were really quite objectionable. And uh, we successfully challenged his candidacy as not being bona fide. And uh, we did not, uh, our broadcasters that we were representing in that case did not have to run that advertising. We have a current situation with a fellow, uh, Randall Terry, who wants to is claiming to run as a Democratic candidate for president uh, in primaries, and he's seeking to put advertising on that is uh, live abortions to try to shock people, shock people's conscience or something of, of that nature, whatever he seems to believe it's for. In that case, the FCC has held that Broadcasters did not have to sell time in the Super Bowl where he sought to buy ads, but uh, whether they have to sell time to him in other situations is still up in the air. But you can challenge their candidacy is probably the best way to deal with that type of situation. Are there consequences to the broadcaster for not complying with these rules? Well, the penalties can be anywhere from a fine Mm -hmm. or reprimand by the commission uh, that will be taken into consideration at uh, license renewal time or what the FCC calls a forfeiture or a fine up to and including a potential loss of their license under the Communications Act. Yeah, sure. So so what's the best thing to do? You've got to use common sense. I mean, every broadcaster is concerned about losing their license and protecting the license, of course. But I think you've got to use common sense. You have to serve your audience and you have to know the rules. So the golden rule is really understand and know the rules and uh, don't live by the concept that the guy down the street is doing something so it's okay for me which you hear a lot from from people but you just have to understand and know the rules and know the law and consult the experts when you need them that sounds like a a good practice tip greg Uh, any final thoughts as we get set to close here as far as political broadcast regulations are concerned well, um, final thought, I think uh, one other area that people ought to be aware of is that broadcasters do get demand letters in every campaign. So lawyers sometimes uh, send letters off to broadcasters based upon their understanding of local law without really uh, researching or understanding those particular rules that apply to broadcasting by the Communications Act and the FCC. So before you send those demand letters or jump into these uh, areas, you really ought to make sure that you've either consulted with a communications lawyer or done some research in the Communications Act or, you know, read the Lexus treatise (laughs) that we've been working on that uh, can lead some people in the right direction, I would hope, and lead everyone in the right direction. Sure. And you've done a good number of webinars, too, on the topic, one of which I know is on your firm's website. Can you direct people to that? Sure. Uh, We have uh, 
variety of materials, including uh, streaming webinars on our website. That's www.wcsr.com forward slash telecom. And that will take you right to our telecommunications practice group website. And if you look uh, around there, and particularly in the column on the right, you'll find the links to the political uh, work that we've been doing recently. Let me also mention that we have another practice group here of lawyers who've come from the Federal Election Commission, and they've been doing a lot of good work representing folks in the uh, who are actually running for office, campaigns, PACs, and corporations, and others, uh, other major contributors to uh, political campaigns. And their website is the same a base website, www.wcsr.com forward slash political, and that'll take you to their materials. And again, the treatise is Telecommunications Regulation, Cable Broadcasting Satellite and the Internet, and the uh, new chapter, A Practical Guide and Summary of Political Broadcast Regulation. And it's available, of course, from LexisNexis. Thank you, Greg. This has been interesting. Appreciate your time and uh, you coming on with us on this LexisNexis Legal Podcast to talk about some of these issues today. Steve, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities. Like the communities on Facebook, follow them on Twitter. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2012 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thanks for listening.